Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing that your word is. And thank you, Father, that we had the opportunity to be here and to uh, listen to what your word would tell us tonight. The, the world's in your hands, Father. All our needs are in your hands. The timing and the, the orchestration of every event in our life, Father, was determined even before we arrived. And with that, Father, we can gain the confidence to know that your goodness has been at work in ensuring outcomes long before we gave them any thought. And your goodness, Father, will persist long after we are gone. So we rest in that. Tonight, Father, in your word, we learn about things of the distant past. But in them, Father, we see your hand. And we can trust that that same hand is in work, working in the world again, even now. And by that, Father, we, we rest. Thank you, Father, for the word, for those who hear, those who teach, and mostly, Father, for those who obey. We praise your name. Amen. Exodus chapter 6. Moses, at this point, has experienced his first confrontation with Pharaoh. That was last week. And the result was, for Israel, great misery and hardship. God's purpose in that encounter was to steal Moses through that encounter for something else to come later. Both Moses and Aaron need to be prepared for the difficulty that this job that God has given them will require or what it will expose them to. This isn't going to be an easy task. The outcome is assured. The methods are prescribed. God's uh, purposes are clear. But it's still going to be difficult on Moses as he goes through the process. Great reminder, even as we start the study tonight, that even though God can line up everything for what he intends to do through us, that in itself does not guarantee a smooth sailing all the way to the conclusion. There's still going to be difficulties to overcome. Meanwhile, what Moses has started in confronting Pharaoh has caused the Israelites to begin grumbling against Moses and his leadership. Now, that's another factor that Moses is going to have to contend with. That also was training, though. Just as God was training Moses to be prepared for the difficulty he faced with Pharaoh, God's also training Moses for the difficulty he'll face with his own people. And there is a lot more grumbling to come in his relationship with the nation of Israel. So now we see God rolling up his sleeves, so to speak. He begins to actually do the work of freeing Israel by pushing Pharaoh step by step toward the inevitable outcome. But first, God is going to spend a few minutes at the beginning of chapter 6 giving Moses an understanding of the privilege that it is for him to see God work in this way. And this is one of the more important sections of the book, perhaps of the Old Testament. So chapter 6, verse 1 is where we start. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion... He will let them go and under compulsion, he will drive them out of the land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, 
And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Well, I read that as a large single section because it stands apart from the rest of the story of Exodus in a very important way. And it'll take a little time to break down why that is true. Looking at the text as we started, the Lord announces to Moses that he will cause Moses to set Israel free from the land. Now, that's not news. Uh, We've heard this before, but he adds another detail in that opening verse. He says, in fact, Pharaoh will actually drive Israel out of the land, not merely let them go, but he will force them out. And as God adds, he will do so out of compulsion, God compelling Pharaoh to do that. The Lord's going to create that motivation. But as we noted last week, the Lord will ensure that Pharaoh hesitates to make that decision to let Israel go until the last judgment is finished. It's as if Pharaoh is a rubber band, if you will, that the Lord wants to stretch to the furthest extent possible before releasing the tension. And with that release, Israel is launched out of the land, so to speak. So God is it going to be at work hardening Pharaoh's heart, preventing him from agreeing too quickly so that by the time the ten plagues are over, only then will Pharaoh relent. In verse two, God repeats his name to Moses. He says, I am who I am. Literally, that's what it says in Hebrew. Hayah, the the verb for I am. Or as your Bible has it translated in English, Lord, or as the Hebrew represents it, Y-H-W-H sometimes pronounced Yahweh in English, but that's not his name. His name is Hayah, the word that he used when he said, I am. In some cases, you will see it translated Jehovah. Jehovah. These are all for the same effect. They are the personal name of God. God gives himself names, many names in the Old Testament, but only one name is his personal name. As he has identified it here, his personal name is the one he revealed to Moses, and it is the name I am. That name has an associated meaning and God's names are associated with meaning by virtue of how he chooses to reveal it. The context, in other words, that he uses in revealing his name. For example, when God appeared to Moses to announce the plan to free Israel, God told Moses at that same moment that he would be called the God I am. That means the name I am or the name Jehovah, if we want to use that term, is a name that means or represents a covenant-keeping God, a promise-keeping God. Because it was in the context of saying, I'm about to keep my promise, that he then identified himself as Jehovah. Furthermore, the God Jehovah will forevermore be known as a covenant-keeping God. He wants his personal name to be identified with this action he's about to take, that is, the action of keeping his covenant. But then God tells Moses something interesting. He says, I did not make myself known to the patriarchs in this same way that he is now prepared to reveal to Moses and to Israel. Now, when God says he did not make himself known to the patriarchs as Jehovah, he does not mean that the patriarchs didn't know that name. 
He is not saying that the patriarchs did not know that God's personal name was Jehovah. On the contrary, they did know that his personal name was Jehovah. And we can see that because there are multiple places in the book of Genesis where those very same patriarchs call out to God with that name in Scripture. He had given them the name. But what he means here when he says to Moses, they did not know me, is he says they did not experience me in doing what this name now means. They did not experience me as a covenant-keeping God. They understood God as El Shaddai, God Almighty, which is the term associated with God's covenant-making power. The patriarchs knew him as a covenant-making God, a God that extends promises to people, calls them by name, and invites them into covenants. What Moses is about to experience, which the patriarchs had not experienced, is Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, the God who brings the promises to reality. God did not choose to reveal the promise-keeping side of his nature to them. They died before that happened. And Hebrews chapter 11 makes clear that they died without seeing those promises kept in their original lifetime. Now, let's be clear about this. Ultimately, all the patriarchs will experience God's faithfulness fully, They will see him keeping all his promises eventually by virtue of their resurrected life in the kingdom. In their future state, the one we all share with them by faith, they will live in the kingdom God promised, in the land that he gave them, and they will be there eternally, and they will see him fulfilling promises through that experience. Then God brings Moses the fullest understanding. So what God has said to Moses up to this point is, I'm about to show you my covenant-keeping nature something even your forefathers never saw. And now he goes forward from that moment in these verses, in verses 6 through 8, with a series of I wills, I will statements, seven to be exact, and that number, of course, is not happenstance. So there are seven I wills that God is pronouncing to Moses. Each of these is a statement connected to God keeping covenants. Taken together, these seven statements declare the full program that God is about to execute for the sake of Israel. I'm not going to go through all seven. I'm going to summarize what they come to mean. First, God will redeem Israel out of Egypt and then out of bondage and do it with great judgments. Secondly, God will make Israel a people for himself, a people set apart from the rest of the world. Third, God will bring them into the land that he promised them. So out of Egypt, out of bondage with great judgments to form a new nation, a people that will always be his and then set them in the land. Those statements are the fulfillment or at least a partial fulfillment, a non-eternal fulfillment of God's promises. There will one day be an eternal fulfillment, but in the near term, he gives them this temporal fulfillment. And it is a demonstration of his covenant keeping power and nature specific to this moment. The reason why he's doing it here in this moment in this temporal fashion is because in the covenant he extended to Abraham, he stipulated that it would be after so many years that Abraham's descendants would find themselves come out of bondage with many possessions and come back into the land that God promised them. So this aspect of that covenant is now being fulfilled. The future full fulfillment awaits the kingdom. These statements are that fulfillment, but they have much greater, farther reaching consequences than merely the Exodus story. Each of these statements is prophetic of a later period of promise keeping, a later form of Exodus, 
a later time in which God acts on behalf of the nation of Israel. Each of these are lesser examples of a much greater redemption that is coming in the future, even in the future from us today. First, God says he will redeem Israel out of Egypt. Well, obviously, in the time of the Exodus, that's a very literal and easy to understand statement. But Egypt is in Scripture commonly a picture of the unbelieving world. Keeping that in mind, God says he will redeem Israel out of Egypt. Secondly, then God says he will remove Egypt from bondage. Physical bondage is commonly a picture in Scripture for what? Spiritual bondage. Physical bondage and slavery is a picture of our slavery to sin. In fact, bondage either way is commonly used in Scripture to mean a spiritual state. You are either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ, Paul would say. So Israel's physical bondage in Egypt becomes a picture thereafter of Israel's spiritual bondage in sin. Thirdly, God says he will deliver Israel into a land that he promised them. Well, the promised land will be an inheritance for Israel. In the time that Israel lived of the, in the Exodus, the land of Canaan was their land, the land God was bringing them into, but it itself is a picture of a greater land, is it not? The promised land that you and I are waiting for is not the promised land that they received in Canaan. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the rest that Israel entered into following Moses in the time when Joshua led them into the land, the rest that they were given in going into the land under Joshua could not have been the ultimate fulfillment of God's promised rest because when you go to the Psalms, which were written hundreds of years later, David in the Psalms is still talking about a future rest for Israel. That's according to Hebrews 4. So Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews looks at that and says, well, clearly, whatever was given to Israel when they walked into the land in that day under Joshua can't be the ultimate meaning of rest if there was another time later when David says there was still an opportunity to enter into his rest. So there still remains a future day when Israel's rest will be fully realized in some greater sense in some greater place. Then lastly, all of these activities, all of these things God is going to do come in concert with great judgments. Great judgments precipitate all these other things. Because of the great judgments, Israel will be collected out of the world. Because of all these judgments, Israel will be set free from spiritual bondage. And because of all these judgments, Israel will finally enter into the greater fulfillment of the land that they've been promised. When you take all these statements together, is it not clear what they are all prophetic about? The time of tribulation in which under great judgments, God brings Israel back into the land, into Israel. Then in that time, delivers them into salvation, we're told, free of sin and living in the kingdom. Ezekiel describes that day. I'm going to give you a couple of passages now that succinctly describe everything I just said. 36:22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Notice, where is Israel? Out in Egypt, so to speak, out in the world. 
Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Does that sound similar to the promises God has made concerning the Exodus, that it would be so that the nations of the world would know the Lord, right? Verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you look, cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances, freeing them from spiritual bondage. Verse 28. You will live in the land I will gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. He will put them in the land. He will make them his people. Identical to the promises he's just articulated, but in the greater fulfillment of the last days. So what Exodus is portraying is a lesser shadow of a greater fulfillment even still of God's promises to Abraham. And at the moment he begins to reveal these things to Moses, he makes clear to him, to Moses, you are now seeing a side of me that even your forefathers never experienced. Ezekiel, again, moving backward to 20, 20, 33, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Does that sound familiar? Verse 34, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. There I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And that word for Lord, the covenant-keeping name of God. Notice the similarity in the language between everything I just read and things we've been reading already and will read in Exodus. This is the greater fulfillment of these promises soon to come. So we are watching essentially a picture that God now is creating through the life of Moses and the lives of those in Israel so that he might have this foreshadow in Scripture for something he is yet to still do even from today. Is God not awesome that he can create this? And the great judgments of the Exodus are foreshadowing the great judgments of tribulation. Not that they are identically matched. That's not necessary. And you'll see later tonight when we start looking at the judgments in an introductory way, there is some wonderful symmetry to them that does hearken back to what we've already studied in tribulation. So in the case of Exodus, you have judgments which precede Israel's release from bondage, which then also lead to Israel worshiping God at a mountain. In the case of Exodus, what was the mountain? Horeb. And what was the worship like at that mountain? It was in the context of the law, of how they were told to worship according to the law. In the second greater fulfillment that's coming at the end of tribulation, there is also a mountain at which an Israel will worship. That mountain will be Zion in the kingdom, and that worship will be in the context of the grace of their Messiah. 
you have an exactly similar pattern. So in verse 7 of Exodus 6, God finishes the I wills by declaring that Israel will be his people and the whole nation will know him. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each, brother, each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So in these opening verses of chapter 6, God is telling Moses, You're about to see something that even your ancestors never experienced. You will know a God of power and faithfulness who delivers on his promises. But even then, Moses is only seeing a partial fulfillment of that faithfulness. There will be an even greater display to Israel and to the world by Christ. As church saints, you and I, we have already received an even greater revelation of God's faithfulness as a promise keeper than even Moses did. Because by our faith and then by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have proof in our own life that God is a promise keeping God. We, too, have yet to see all of God's promises fulfilled. So we're all in this path together in which God is continually revealing more and more of who he is in keeping with his word. The church is now the latest and greatest demonstration of that. And the ultimate one is when God proves fully faithful to Israel. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say this in Hebrews 1 1 at the very beginning of the book. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. So we have gained far more than Moses ever knew, even given the fact that Moses saw miracles we haven't seen. The Bible tells us that our present experience is a greater revelation than anything God gave to any who've come before. And if offered the chance, the Old Testament saints would have traded what they received for the chance to know what we know concerning the Messiah. Because we're told in Scripture, angels longed to see the things we have. Conversely, then, should you ever be tempted to think that wouldn't it have been nice to live in a time when men got burning bushes or Visits from angels in their tent. Don't trade what you have for what they have. Finally, Moses tells all of what he heard to Israel in verse 9. And of course, they don't listen to him. They're so despondent as a result of their circumstances, they can't consider these important issues. And really, who could blame them at this point? The concept that someone who is so despondent by their circumstances can't listen to deep and meaningful theology though it's important and though it would help them to know these things, that is at the heart of James when he says, if we say to someone, be warm and be filled, but do not give them what they need, what good is that? It's not because their physical needs trump their spiritual needs. It's because of the obvious fact that when you're so hungry, you can't think you're not going to be very good at listening to spiritual things or doing spiritual things. This is a simple example of that, but it does remind us of that. 
Now, back into the text, God repeats his previous instructions to Moses. Exodus chapter 6, verse 10. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land. Moses is he's kind of a hero to me because if he can do this kind of thing, I don't feel quite as bad about the fact that I'm tempted at times to second guess God for the third time. (laughs) Moses starts with this doubting of his abilities, of his ability to accomplish the task facing him. We covered all of this in the previous chapters when God answered and addressed all of those concerns. But here you have him once again back to assuming that the success of the mission depends on him. And by that, I mean on his physical ability, on his natural ability. Moses complains that if the Israelites haven't listened to me, how are you going to expect me to have influence on a man like Pharaoh? Well, from a human point of view, that's a very logical question. And the answer is really obvious. You shouldn't expect Pharaoh to listen to you if that's the case. In verse 12, I love this. Moses uses this graphic description to describe his weakness. And depending on your Bible version, you may see this in its graphic way or you may have had it done like mine where they've glossed it over to make it sound a little better. Because in my English version, it says, I am unskilled in speech, but that's not what it says in Hebrew. What it says in Hebrew literally is, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. He literally means that he speaks as if he has a layer of skin enclosing over his mouth, not to be graphic. Now, I watched the movie pretty closely. I'm pretty sure Charlton Heston did not get good treatment from that makeup artist. No sign of skin on the front of his face. From the sound of it, what Moses is seeming to say is he is incapable of performing the task, that his physical body is unable to do what God has asked him to do. But God is still going to succeed because he's chosen to work through Moses and Aaron. So there's no doubt about that. That leads Moses then to provide his own genealogy, which is an interesting divergence, it would seem, from the text, from where he's been going in the narrative. But it makes perfect sense because at this point, God is preparing to begin a work of judgment in Egypt. And Moses and Aaron are his appointed men for that task. But as Moses just said, Israel's not accepting him in that role. So now through the genealogy, Moses makes an effort to substantiate his call and his authority in this role. And we can go through this fairly quickly and make a few observations Along the way, Exodus 614 through the end to 627. These are the heads of their father's households. The son of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak and Palu, Herzon and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath, Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, according to their families, the sons of Kohath, Emron and Izar and Hebron and Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, Mushai. These are the families of the Levites, according to their generations. Amron married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amron's life was 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, 
and Zitri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, and El-Zaphon, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of Nimadad, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nebdad, Abahu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, Abiasaf, these are the families of the Korahites. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's households of the Levites, according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. So a few observations, starting with that last verse. Moses says the purpose of giving this record was to establish conclusively for Israel that Aaron and Moses had authority to head standing as God's representatives and to identify them specifically as descendants in the families of Israel. So that means they were eligible to share in the promises of God. They were prophets of God in that they came from the line of Jacob. And in centuries to come, the names Moses and Aaron are going to be uniquely associated with these two men and what they did. You can't say the word Moses without people remembering this whole story, right? And even if you meet someone named Moses, their notoriety, no matter what they do, will never exceed the notoriety of Moses in this story. Even though Israel wouldn't listen to Moses in this day, Moses and Aaron are legitimate representatives. And among the sons of Jacob, he only traces the first four. Because at that point, he's just trying to connect the dots to Levi from Jacob. Once he gets to Levi, he dives down through Levi's line because at that point, he's just following the thread to himself. And there along the way, he gives people ages because he always gives an age to the person who is a link in the chain and so on. That's how we end up with good dating for genealogies, by the way. Looking at his personal family, Moses and Aaron's great-grandfather was Levi. So that's all I wanted to do with the genealogy. We're going to move promptly now into chapter 7 and begin to set up what comes in the plagues. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will... Lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. People are dated like that in Scripture at moments in their life that are significant, like when they have a child or like in this case, when they speak to Pharaoh. Now, we've heard this plan before. It's being repeated here, of course. It's always fascinating to me, though, every time I hear it, because wouldn't it have been simpler just to work through Aaron? It seems unnecessarily complicated to have this two step representation. Wouldn't you agree? So that begs the question. God's not capricious. He certainly doesn't do things randomly. What's his purpose in making it this two step process? Well, I believe what God is doing here is establishing a pattern for Israel that begins here and then continues throughout their existence. And because we take it for granted now, today, it may be a reason why we don't recognize this as a significant change. Because we're used to God raising up leaders on the one hand and prophets on the other. 
And throughout the nation of Israel's history, you had leaders like elders or judges or kings, but they always played a role distinct from other men in the nation of Israel who were given the job to be prophets. They came with the word of God. Until this point, though, until this moment, God had never established that distinction. Men were both, at times, the patriarchal leader and the one who received God's word and distributed it to others or shared it with others. But here you see the beginning of this pattern where God now telling Moses, you will act as if you were God to Aaron. And what he means by that, of course, is he will be a source of knowledge to Aaron, just as God is a source of knowledge to Moses. And that will become a pattern in which there's a leader identified separate from the man who has the words to speak from God. God uses this forevermore in the nation of Israel. God also reminds Moses here that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened against his words. Notice again, the source of the hardening. It's God, God himself, stopping Pharaoh before Pharaoh might give in too early. Now, in the early stages of the confrontation, as we've already said, Pharaoh doesn't need hardening. This is a guy who already doesn't want to let Israel go. So there's no initial hardening from God. God just lets Pharaoh be who he is because it works for God to leave it that way. But when the plagues begin to wear Pharaoh down, right around plague five, you'll see God step in and start hardening Pharaoh's heart. That's because that God sees Pharaoh wavering and now he wants to shore up Pharaoh's resistance. The effect of all of that is to ensure that we get to the very end of the plagues and in that God magnifies his glory all the way to the end. God says in verse five that in this way, all Egypt will know the living God. They will know this truth. Not only because Israel is set free, but because of the severity of so many plagues. God says the whole of Egypt will know that God is the Lord. But that is not saying that all of Egypt will be saved by that knowledge. They are not believing in the word of the Lord so as to be saved. God is simply saying that the nation of Egypt will recognize the truth of God, of who he is and that he is God. But without a saving faith. And this is similar to the way James says the demons operate in James 2.19. He says, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, meaning that they have enough knowledge of God to be nervous, to be worried about their future. But it didn't save them. The Egyptians will be forced to acknowledge that God is the God of Israel. And this acknowledgement will force the release of, of Israel, but none of that leads them to saving faith. Remember, God says in his word that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the name of Jesus. But that moment is not a moment of universal salvation. For the most part, that moment is a moment of unbelievers brought to an obvious truth and not to a saving one. So only those who make that acknowledgement on the basis of faith in this life will receive his mercy. So now, this section provides yet another shadow of the end times deliverance of Israel. Did you see it? Egypt represents the world, having experienced God's wrath and tribulation. And in the last days of the judgments, as the final judgment comes out at the end, what is the effect of that final judgment? Recognition from all those on earth of who Jesus is and of who the Lord is, but not for the effect of the saving of all, but for the glory of God in that recognition. So let's go now into the first confrontation with Pharaoh. Verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So God tells Moses that Pharaoh is going to ask him to work a miracle. When this happens, Moses then uses that serpent miracle that God had already given him, had already prompted him to use. It was common in the ancient world for men to demand proof of anyone who came claiming to be an oracle of a god. They wanted some legitimacy proven from this person's claims, and so they would ask, work a miracle to prove to me that you are who you say you are. You see that pattern even in the time of Jesus, right? People expected Jesus to perform miracles to validate his claim as Messiah, and often he obliged and he would perform those kinds of signs. Well, God tells Moses, you can expect the same request from Pharaoh. When you show up, he's going to ask for something. Use the serpent thing I gave you. God knows what Pharaoh will say, and so he's already prepared Moses with a tool to fit that purpose perfectly, further proof of God's equipping power. Based on this example from Exodus, I think there's two things we can conclude abundantly, clearly. First, we spend way too much time worrying about our abilities to get the job done for God. And secondly, all that worry is unnecessary because he's already going to equip us for just what we need for the work he's going to give us. We may not hear about it up front like Moses did. That may be the only difference. But I can assure you from the standpoint of Scripture that when we worry about whether we have what it takes to get the job done, we're like Moses talking about uncircumcised lips while he's holding on to the very staff that God's already prepared him with for the job he's going to go do. So all that worrying just gets in the way of our obedience. So as Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, they perform the miracle as directed. The staff becomes a snake. You all saw the movie. Despite the 50s era special effects, it was still pretty impressive. And it becomes a snake. But rather than be flustered by that or impressed by that, Pharaoh just calls for his wise men and his sorcerers and his magicians, you know, come on, guys, do the thing. And they come up with exactly the same miracle. They practice something called the dark arts or the occult. And they are similar then to the men in Nebuchadnezzar's court that you read about in Daniel, men who had access to those kinds of powers. The text says in verse 11, that these men performed the same. And that's an important statement in verse 11. The same. Based on that text, then, there's no hint that these events are parlor tricks or gimmicks. In both cases, the appearance of the serpent is a real event, a real miracle. Because if whatever Moses did is of God and therefore miraculous, when it says that the magicians managed the same, we shouldn't cut their abilities down any less if that term is used in Scripture. The magician's snake is no less real than Moses's. In fact, as I said, verse 11 says they're the same. So this moment tells us something helpful theologically. It proves that miraculous signs and wonders are not unique to God. Satan has supernatural power as well, and he displays it here through the work of these magicians. Now, obviously, all power extends from God to include the power he has given to his created being, Satan. And Satan is working with the power God gave him. Furthermore, it's also obvious that God is permitting Satan to do what he does, for God is in control of all things. So we're not diminishing God's power in any way to simply acknowledge what is obvious, which is that Satan has some power. 
and he is at work using it here. But the very fact that Satan can counterfeit God's work through signs and miracles is proof to us that we cannot form our understanding of truth on the basis of such things. Power and miracles are not conclusive evidence of truth unless the message they support is in agreement with Scripture. So his power falls short in demonstrating truth or in delivering truth, something that is in accordance with Scripture, in other words. And that's where he can be seen for who he really is. The testimony of a prophet, then, must comport with the overall testimony of Scripture. Otherwise, they are to be dismissed. Now, in Old Testament days, if someone claimed to be a prophet, they had to meet two tests, lest they be stoned. The first test was that if they ever made any prophetic prediction, it had to be 100% right every time. If they were ever wrong to any degree, that was it. Stone them. But even if they were right all the time, that wasn't sufficient. Because of this issue we're looking at here, because supernatural signs and wonders can be counterfeited, including prophetic wonders. Their second test was that whatever they spoke had to be consistent with Scripture overall. And if you might ask, well, how can Satan know the future? The answer is he doesn't. What Satan can do, though, is tell you what he's going to do and then go do it and give the impression that somebody knew the future. So if Satan says tomorrow there's going to be fire coming down from some place and then tomorrow he goes and he does it, but gives you the knowledge of his decision to do it in advance, then it might come off as a miraculous prophetic sign. And there is examples of that elsewhere in Scripture. So at the core of this issue is the difference between experiential truth and expositional truth. Experiential truth is any experience that teaches a spiritual truth. For example, the moment of Pentecost was an experiential truth for those who experienced it. It wasn't taught to them. They learned it by experience. But it was truthful. It came from God. Expositional truth is truth revealed by the Word of God. God's Word is truth to those who learn it. The Bible itself teaches that expositional truth is always greater or always trumps experiential truth. They are not equal. Expositional truth is always held in a greater esteem than experiential truth. Obviously, if experiential truth is from God, it will line up with Scripture. But where they don't line up, for whatever reason, expositional truth reigns. And we dismiss the experiential data as not truth, self-evidently because it doesn't align with Scripture. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If our experiences, if our feelings, our thoughts, or things we hear, or events we witness, if those things conflict in any way with the Word of God, then those experiences are not valid truth. And by the way, that is one of the chief means cults use to sway people to their point of view. Part of the Mormon pitch, if you've ever heard it, it'll always come out the same way. They'll talk about how an angel of light appeared to Joseph Smith and that the Spirit has now spoken to them individually concerning that history, and they have come to believe it is true because of what they've experienced from the Spirit. And if you pray and you receive that same Spirit experientially, you'll, you'll come to that same understanding. And our response to that needs to be, I don't judge truth on the basis of what I experience or feel. I judge truth on the basis of the source of truth, that is God and His Word. If what you feel lines up with this, so be it. If it doesn't, then I take this over what you feel. So if we had witnessed this scene in Pharaoh's court, the snakes 
one in another. And if we relied entirely on that experience to determine truth, what would we have concluded? At the very least, we might have concluded that God and Satan have equal power before one ate the other, I guess. But the point is to see that those two miracles repeated one after another. You might have thought, well, these two are on an equal playing field. That would have been a false conclusion from an experience rather than from the Bible. We can have confidence that God has preserved his word in a way that we know and can trust is accurate. And one of the best places in Scripture to show you that is right here. Look at this scene. In this scene, Moses never names the magicians who performed these miracles in Pharaoh's court. We don't know who they are. They're not mentioned. Moses never records it at all in any of the five books of Moses, in any of his writings. But this story was told and retold over the centuries and millennia, Jewish family to Jewish family. It was their history, right? Well, in the course of recording that history and repeating it, they preserved the names of the two magicians who performed this magic trick in the time of of Moses. They kept those names in the culture, even though Moses never recorded them. How do we know that? Well, Paul recorded their names in the New Testament in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, Paul says, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Throughout the centuries, the Jews had held these two men's names as the men of the court of Pharaoh who had performed those tricks. That was the folklore. And then Paul, being Jew, knew that and recorded it. And because it's recorded here in Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we now can conclude that those names are accurate, that they're being recorded by the inspiration of the Spirit because God agrees with it, that this is, in fact, the names of those two men. What's the point here? The point is that if these two names could be preserved accurately through Jewish tradition for centuries, even though Moses never wrote them down, then it's all the more certain that God's written word has been preserved accurately by those same people over that same period of time. I mean, if they can preserve oral history this accurately, they can certainly hold on to the written word that God gave them. The word is God's word. Here again, we have a picture of the last days and of the deliverance of the Jews during tribulation. Because look what Paul says. In that future time, Paul tells us elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians, Satan will deceive the entire world with signs and wonders, making him appear seemingly to be equal to God. Actually, making him appear to be God. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The end times, which are pictured by this time in Exodus, include Satan working with signs and miracles and wonders to the degree that he deceives the world with it. We see a small piece of that here. Also notice in that Timothy passage I mentioned from Paul, he uses these two men, as examples of how the enemy can work deception and wonders to get a foothold in the lives of Christians. The men, he says, are depraved of mind without faith, meaning they're rejected by God. They don't, they don't have faith. 
Paul says that these deceivers will not win in the end, but they will fool some people. And look who they fool. They prey on the weak. They deceive people who are weighed down by sin and seek for some greater experience beyond just the word of God. These are the people that Hebrews, I think, is talking about in Hebrews 5.13 and and on where he says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the more expositional truth you know, the better prepared you are to discern experiential truth, to distinguish between good and evil in your everyday life. So now at this point, God gives a demonstration of the superiority of his power by making the one snake swallow the other from the magicians. The whole purpose in this was that Pharaoh would understand Moses has authority in what he says. It's not intended to change his mind. It's not intended to free Israel. We've already heard. God says, I'm not going to let him do it. Its only point was to legitimize that Moses had power. It's what gives him access to Pharaoh ten more times. Had he not been able to do this, there's little chance a random guy from the desert could walk up to the king of the most powerful country on earth and get an audience with him anytime he wanted to. He probably gained this audience out of his history, having come out of Pharaoh's court years earlier. Had this not gone well for Moses, he would never have been given access, likely, again. This is his key to a conversation. And, of course, with each successive miracle, there's more reason still for Pharaoh to take him in and listen to him. So at this point, having made that proof and set that stage for the miracles, we're now ready to begin studying the famous plagues of Egypt. Now, tonight, we're just going to start with an introduction. Next week, when we come back, we'll begin, as I said, the formal teaching of the plagues. And as you might expect with a, a series of events that number 10, that there's probably some underlying structure. There's probably some underlying significance and meaning and patterns. And yes, there is. So we're going to have to examine those patterns up front, understand them, and then look to apply them as we go through all of the plagues. First, these events are most properly called judgments, not plagues. Each of the ten events is a specific judgment delivered by God. First, these events are targeted at achieving three outcomes. First, we know free Israel. Second, to punish Egypt. Third, to condemn Egyptian idolatry. We know the first two really easily, right? The third one, though, is the one that you may not have understood or we may not have seen already. When God prepares the tenth judgment, this is what he says to Moses. So if we jumped all the way to the tenth judgment, when God starts to talk about what he's been doing, he says this in Exodus 12, 12. He says, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both male and beast, And listen, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And then later in Numbers 33, when Moses is recounting this whole story from past perspective, he says in Numbers 33, 3, they journeyed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. The Lord had also executed judgment on their gods. So as Israel leaves Egypt, Moses noted that these judgments weren't just against the people of the land. It was also meant to be judgments against the gods of Egypt. Now, remember, we said there's 80 or more gods we know of in the pantheon of gods within Egypt. Well, 
Each of these judgments is crafted in such a way that they expose the true nature of Egypt's gods. That is, that they are not real gods at all. So with each judgment taking some specific form, that form is designed to assault some god or set of gods in Egypt that are either representative of or in some way connected with those judgments or with the manner of that judgment. And you're going to see this as we go through each judgment. We're going to highlight what god or gods are being systematically destroyed in the minds of the Egyptians by the nature of that judgment. By the way, the Egyptians themselves would have had no choice but to note that connection because they would see with each plague the cutting down at the heart of something they worshipped. For example, the Nile. The Nile is associated with at least three or four different gods. And the fish in the Nile are associated with certain gods. God kills all the fish in the river. It's instantly a sign to the Egyptians that our God isn't very powerful. So now the next thing you're going to note, and we finish with this tonight, is the orderliness of these judgments. And there's some there's some really remarkable pattern in them. If you look at the judgments, every detail about these is crafted like a piece in a puzzle. First, they can be grouped into three groups of three with the tenth plague on its own. The number nine in Scripture refers to judgment and the number 10 refers to testimony. Now, you may have known this when we did this in the Ruth class, if you were in Ruth at any point, but number nine means judgment. In scripture, 10 means testimony as in a testimony to God, a positive thing, a testimony to God. And of course, we'll look at that more closely when we get to 10. Each of these judgment uses natural phenomenon that have been intensified to an extreme degree. None of the plagues by themselves are unprecedented in nature, but in the way they're provided in excess, they become a judgment. By the way, the Egyptians worshipped gods that always represented something in creation. So it's the excess of these things in creation. It's like the equivalent, I think, of what God did to Israel at one point in their wandering when they wanted meat. So he gave them so much quail it was coming out of their nose. It's that sense of judgment, but against these gods. These judgments come by different actors. The first three come by Aaron. The second three by God working alone. The last three by Moses. The first two always come with warnings before they're given. The last one of the groups always come without warning. And of the warnings, the first warning always comes in the morning. Isn't that interesting? So it signals by coming in the morning the beginning of a new series. The first two plagues are mimicked by the Egyptian magicians. That's a little Mickey hat there. As a result, those two impact everyone, including the Jews. Because remember, God's judgments are not impacting the Jews. But when the sorcerers get involved and mimic, theirs go against everyone, which itself reminds us of something. We know God does not bring judgment against his people, but the enemy's response to God will produce collateral damage. We see a similar pattern in tribulation, by the way where the Lord brings judgments against the world, but not against those who are sealed, not against the believer. Nonetheless, Satan responds to that by attacking and persecuting the believers. Now, after the first two plagues, the magicians cease trying to copy God. They say they can't do it anymore. And so, therefore, after the first two, the rest only affect Egypt. This is an example of the principle Peter teaches in 2 Peter 2.9 when he says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Or, to put it simply, God is discriminatory. He knows how to deal properly with each side. The next pattern to note is that these plagues increase in severity by group. 
And they sometimes get referred to as loathsome or painful or grievous, depending on your translation. The first three are loathsome. Now, what it's referring to is the word loathsome just means detestable or revolting. In other words, the Egyptians are greatly disturbed by them. Blood in the river, dead frogs everywhere, stinking up the place. But they don't impact the people directly and they do not have lasting consequences. Eventually the water comes back, eventually the frogs are gone and so on. The second group, though, are painful judgments. They are painful to the people and the animals. Um, They uh, are more severe in the sense that they're longer lasting. They inflict great discomfort, more serious outcomes. And then finally, the last ones are grievous or intensely destructive. They exceed anything that's come before. They leave a lasting impact. Altogether, how long do you think it takes for all of these judgments to play out? Six months. So this is six months of history in in Egypt. And so, as you can tell, there's going to be gaps of time between them. And that adds, I think, to an understanding of how Pharaoh's heart could recover, so to speak, from some of those plagues and perhaps think that it's come and gone only to see it return. Next time, when we get back, we're done, but next time when we come back, this pattern will be in the back of our minds. We'll refer to it occasionally, but for the most part, what we'll do is we will go through a group at a time if, if everything goes as planned. So for the next three weeks, we'll do three weeks of those judgments. The tenth clearly has an entirely different nature and purpose, and as a picture of Christ through the Passover, we have an extended time to look at that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these pictures and for these... Uh, Opportunities to see your work portrayed prophetically. We also thank you, Father, for the power that you have in carrying out your promises. We thank you that we're included in them. This understanding of how you did what you did in Egypt, Father, is an opportunity for us to see more of your nature and character. But, Father, let it also be a reminder to us that you have a plan, that you will see it through, that though it may not go as we expect and though it may bring collateral damage at times, that's not to stop the overall progress, it's not to put doubt in our minds concerning the end. It is simply, Father, to remind us that there is power in this world that is yours, power that is against you, but nothing will prevail. And we rest in that, Father. Thank you for the time and the word. Let us come back next week if it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.